This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We live in a political world. And he is living in a political world. We're all living in a political world. We're especially happy that Matthew Phillips, who's usually down in Washington, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I just got the alert on my all phone that, that buzzing, here. All that the Matthew's buzzing here. you're hearing. Don't Matthew's worry, here. it's a test. Don't it's a worry. test. But Matthew is here. Uh, he is politics and policy editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, and as I said, he is right here with us. So, yes. Matthew, nothing going on as it relates to politics no, no. Wait, or wait, wait. policy. Can I just the future say... future of the Supreme Court and perhaps the tax situation of our sitting president or yeah i mean that's it there's like i look at the menu and uh, the top menu and there's just you know it's all stories out of washington what do you think is the one that investors should be focusing on right now oh um between the two between kavanaugh and uh and and the or if there's one situation. we're missing yes yeah, there one we're missing well what do you what do we think about the yield curve no just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. i'm in i'm in new york here so it's a little bit in the ether wall street joke so folks. look i mean the, the market keeps going up and so they seem quite happy with um, the new trade deal. Right. Uh, NAFTA, by another name, by all accounts, it looks quite similar to what we already have on the books. And investors are happy about that. Uh, whether this continues into the new year and uh, the, the tax uh, cuts for corporations are going to continue with us seems to you know, be up in the air. But, um, but so far, everybody seems happy, at least about the, tax, about the, uh, the trade deal. What question about the trade deal? How worried should investors be, if at all, that this doesn't make it through Congress? That's a great point, right? And this isn't going to be something that's going to be passed by this Congress. This is going to be passed by the next one, it seems highly likely. So I think because it's so similar to the current deal, I think that there's a good chance that it's going to go through. Interesting. All right, so Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh latest, as we say. What's going on? What what should we expect next? Well, we're still in the uh, the aftershock of the president's remarks last night, um, seeming to call into question and um, uh, you know come at uh, Doctor Ford for really the first time. Um, Let's be fair; he mocked her. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. And after Mon- was it Monday in that press conference where he came out and seemed supportive of her, or saying that she seemed credible? He, he, against um, his previous, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, against, uh, he, he, by all accounts, what has been a, a, a trigger finger to go after, uh, you know, political enemies, he kind of held fire for a long time on, on her. And it was only a matter of time, really, before we saw what happened last night happen. We've seen the three crucial senators, Murkowski, Flake, um, and Susan Collins, come out and denounce those comments. Um, Sarah Sanders from the podium in the White House has said he was just laying out the facts uh, that it was not a political hit on Dr. Ford. But that's not, I think, um, how a lot of the world is seeing it. And certainly the three key members that will make or break this nomination are seeing it. The the three Republican senators. uh, And it really does just come down to these three by by most accounts. By math. That's right. So Flake goes, you get one more. And if, if either 
Collins or Murkowski go, assuming none of the Democrats vote, which is an open question. Yeah. Um, Manchin, still a bit of an open question. What do we think? Well, so Manchin came out and said something to the effect of, you know, no man really truly understands the trauma uh, that a woman goes through in an assault like this. Mm -hmm. You can read between the lines of what that means. Uh, but the math is tight, regardless, and they can lose one and still get uh, Mike Pence to cast the deciding vote. Anything short of that, on the Republican side at least, uh, this thing uh, doesn't happen. What are the politi political ramifications, Matthew, of all of this? Because I've heard folks say that New York Times deep dive into the Trump family uh, taxes, uh, if you will, that with his political base, for mm -hmm. Trump's base, it really doesn't mean anything. And I'm just curious, a win or loss of Kavanaugh, how this plays out, too. So you're exactly right. And what we saw last night and what we've seen at a lot of these rallies in very red states were the president playing to his base. And what's um, amazing about what he did in 2016 was expand beyond that base. And what's even more amazing as he gets pushed and pushed into this kind of political corner, he has narrowed his message to this sec section of the electorate that will never leave him, that basically says the media is out for him, the rich and the, the elite are out for him, never mind that this kind of undercuts his self-made man uh, kind of story that he sold so well um, during his career and also on the campaign. Um, whether this you know, further uh, leads independence to, to leave you know, him and thus the party in the midterms is really the question. And he's underwater in, in a lot of states and a lot of polls. And I think in the minds of a lot of people, this only confirms this notion that the story of Donald Trump as self-made man as, you know, expert businessman and dealmaker is not quite what it uh, has been sold as. It is interesting. It will be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of days, how much it becomes fodder for the campaign trail, you know, for Democrats using it. it Democrats seem to be trying to choose what may be, uh, you know, the, the most potent uh, of their arguments uh, because they are, in fact, it seems in almost every case running against the president, not necessarily running against their right. opponent. And let's be clear, there are political ramifications and legal ramifications, right? The New York State uh, tax officials have said they're going to look into this. Um, there is no statute of limitation when it comes to civil tax cases. Generally speaking, it looks like this is too old to lead to any sort of criminal inquiry. And, and this, as the piece so well lays out, there is a very murky line between tax avoidance and tax evasion, and it has to do with intent. Right. Now, that's the legal side of this. The political side of this, again, as, as we kind of laid out, is a little bit more baked, and it only kind of skews things in the way that they're already starting to skew. Right. Matthew Phillips. Only Wednesday. Always breaking <laughs> it down for us. We love having him on the weekend show, and yes. it is terrific to have you here with us. Carol Masser portrays it. We're all going to be easing down the road, reading books, texting, whatever we want to do. Someone else is going to be driving the car. The car is going to be driving itself. Big news in that corner of the world. And in Detroit today, GM announcing a tie-up with Honda, kind of the first of its kind, really an evolution of a lot of the deals that we've been seeing and big news in the self-driving game. Our own David Weston spoke with GM President Dan Amon earlier. Here's what he had to say about the GM Honda deal. 
Well, our mission is to deploy this technology safely at massive scale, and uh, having another partner on board that brings tremendous resources to the equation uh, is another big step in that direction. You know, SoftBank invested two and a quarter billion. Honda's bringing 2.75 billion to the table, uh, and uh, you know, a huge amount of engineering resources, and uh, we're full speed ahead. You talked earlier about the purpose built. When you say purpose, what is the purpose for autonomous driving? That is to say, we won't have a steering wheel. One of the constraints we're now able to release is that we won't have a driver in the car, we won't have driver controls, and so that allows us to set aside you know, decades and decades of automotive design, completely reimagine what a car can look like, how it can be used, uh, and how efficient it can be, and so that, this is the first time that anyone will be doing that uh, you know, for a vehicle that's ready to be deployed at massive scale. Well, this new automobile that's, that's uh, produced by the joint venture, I understand General Motors is going to be manufactured, will be sold by Cruise, will be sold by a new joint venture, will be sold individually by Honda and General Motors? Uh, it's actually going to be operated on the cruise network. So uh, the initial deployment of this uh, will be in a uh, network-controlled environment. The vehicles will be owned and operated on the cruise network. That was General Motors President Dan Ammon speaking earlier with our David Weston over on the Bloomberg TV side. Hey, let's bring in Jamie Butters, U.S. Autos Editor at Bloomberg News from our Detroit bureau. So uh, was, this, was this a bit of a surprise, this uh, collaboration between GM and Honda? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a big surprise because Honda had been uh, talking with Waymo and had been sort of public about it. And Waymo, of course, is the uh, former Google self-driving car project. Uh, they uh, pretty, you know, pretty far advanced, one of the most, uh, you know, probably the most advanced system in the world. Uh, they have a deal with, with uh, Fiat Chrysler to supply plug-in hybrid minivans that they then equip with their software and, and uh, have those out on the road and are, and are doing some, you know, demos of, uh, you know, like a, like a ride hailing only without uh, paying people paying for the rides <laughs> in uh, Phoenix. And so, you know, Honda had been talking with Waymo. It looked like maybe they would have a similar deal to Fiat Chrysler, maybe something more. Uh, but then here they are this morning in Detroit announcing uh, this big tie-up with GM. It's not just... A little one-off. I mean, they're going to put billions of, of talking about billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this feels like a, a big deal. And so, Jamie, give us some context across the world of cars. You look at it very holistically. These tie-ups don't normally happen. You know, sometimes people collaborate on an engine or something like this. This is much more holistic, it feels like. Well, it definitely feels uh, more strategic, you know, um, because this is one of, you know, a big emerging field in the auto industry. One of the big things that's, you know, disrupting uh, the industry as, as we know it, as, as I've covered it for the last two decades. And, um, you know, and so there's a lot of money, as we've quoted, you know, Alex Partners and others, there's going to be, there are going to be billions of dollars wasted <laughs> as people try to figure out how to make a business out of autonomous vehicles and out of electrification. Honda has actually one of the pretty advanced, uh, you know, know, semi-autonomous systems, the Mm -hmm. driver assist systems that keep your vehicle in the lane and keep you from running into the car ahead of you. They're very far along on that, but clearly they didn't feel like they could get all the way to self-driving on their own, and they wanted to team up with someone else. And, and, you know, so this is, you know, $3 billion almost that they're going to hand over to a competitor to say, uh, we're with you. (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting, too. It comes on a day. There's another story on the Bloomberg that talks about first it was America's best-selling electric car. Then it became the best-selling luxury car. Now, against all odds, Tesla's Model 3 is becoming one of the best-selling sedans 
in America, period. You know, so it's interesting. I, you know, I'm just watching everybody jockeying in the e, not in the EV, but also EV and self-driving space. You know, all of this stuff going on. Um, do we know who is going to be a leader, or will there be multiple players? Um, in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> well, I think you hit the three big ones, right? We, we, uh, Waymo is uh, very big. They're very far advanced. All the money in the world from Google. Uh, GM has really distinguished itself among you know the traditional automakers, uh, getting Honda to buy in with them and the money from SoftBank if they stay on track. It's $5 billion that's coming out of other folks. Uh, that should give GM a fighting chance to get there. And then, you know, Tesla... Uh, has had a lot of troubles, a lot of ups and downs, but they are somewhat of an automaker at this point, and they are very much a tech-type company, and a lot of their potential, you know, they could be real leaders in that. They've got a lot of problems to solve first, but uh, that's what they do. That's what Elon does, right? Yeah. Eh, See with seconds to spare. Jimmy Butters, thank you, thank you. U.S. Autos Editor at Bloomberg News from our bureau in Detroit. GM shares, by the way, are up 2.7%. We're talking a lot about technology this week because there's a lot going on. You had HP and Inventu launch some PCs, Microsoft talking about upgrades. Uh, that happened earlier this week. And then tomorrow you've got BlackBerry hosting an event and some news out of Dell today. So let's make some sense of it all. Morgan Stanley also sounding the alarm on semis again today. Bob O'Donnell is president and chief analyst at Technalysis Research based in Foster City, California, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York on this Wednesday. Nice to have you in studio. We're always talking to you on the Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Carol. You've had a busy week, a lot of hardware stuff. What is it that um, our audience and investors need to know? From what you've seen. You know, look, it's an interesting time for the PC market. You know, a market, obviously, a lot of people wrote off as being dead many years ago. It's actually doing some pretty interesting things. In fact, Intel recently has talked about how they're facing chip shortages because the PC market is doing better than it expected. And so what's, what's really happening is we're sort of in this renaissance of, of PCs, and we're starting to see these really beautiful, elegant machines that people actually would like to carry around. So HP kicked things off this week here in New York. But when York. you say by carrying around, you mean laptops. They're laptops, yes, to be okay. clear. Yeah, to be clear. That's where most of the, the action is. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on in, in the desktop. Gaming PCs are huge right. because of you know all the professional eSports uh, sort of stuff. That's Fortnite, Fortnite, yeah, Fortnite, Fortnite. Oh, my God. My, I can't get my 25-year-old even off of that thing. But <laughs> anyway, um, so HP kicked things off this week. They had this beautiful leather, not just leather wrapped, but the case itself is a beautiful leather notebook PC. It's really pretty clever. It's called the Spectre Folio. So they've had this Spectre line for a while, and it's done quite well for them. It's a, what they call convertible, where you can you know, kind of swip, flip the screen around in different ways. This one is new variation on the theme. Not only is it this beautiful case that the, the guts of the PC are built into, but in addition, they have this clever mode where you can pull the screen forward instead of flipping it around, you know, as you t- typically do with these things. It's right. just a little bit easier. Bottom line, it's a luxurious thing. It's so funny because I wrote a column on this week where all these guys have been talking about the experience of using a device, but they're really talking... It's sort of touchy-feely stuff, but also just what it's like in general. But now you literally have the experience of holding and carrying and working with this beautiful leather device. And I thought it was actually pretty clever and pretty interesting. I mean, look, speeds and feeds, you know, nobody cares as much anymore. So it's this 
this kind of stuff that's interesting. All right. So I, I got to ask you, and this falls under the category of Carol Masser, who is fond of saying, wait, what? <laughs> that that was my reaction to there's a big BlackBerry event going yes. on. I, yeah. Wait, what? I, yeah, it, I know. They, so the BlackBerry event is tomorrow. It's, it's what they're calling a security summit. So you got to think about BlackBerry very differently than we traditionally have, right? right? BlackBerry is an IoT security company. Remember that they Internet also, of Things. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, Internet of Things. And that touches a lot of areas, including automotive. In fact, one of the hidden gems that BlackBerry owns is an operating system called QNX. And QNX is not a visible thing that you see, but it's an ultra, ultra reliable system that car manufacturers use for all, you know, behind the scenes in the cars. You know, the interface you see on top may be Apple CarPlay or Google right. or, or the, the vendor's own. You're saying about what makes the car actually but work. The stuff that actually makes the car work and it has to be rock solid reliable is QNX. It's also used in other things like airplanes and other areas, critical industrial environments. So because of that heritage and because of all the security heritage of BlackBerry, they are really positioning themselves as this kind of security software provider. They're even leveraging the good old Knox, their network operations centers that they had that made BlackBerry email so secure. They're using those for these um, uh, security solutions for IoT. That's a big enough business, isn't it? It, it is a it, big enough business, and and that's been how they've you know evolved themselves. Interestingly, they still haven't given up on the phones. You, yeah, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, it is amazing though. You know, as I looked at our notes coming into this segment, it's like Bob O'Donnell's going to talk about HP, Microsoft, and BlackBerry. It's like, and apparently it's two thousand four. <laughs> like, no, right? I know. Well, it is interesting. I mean, and you know. It's very interesting to see how these companies have evolved. I mean, going back to HP. Well, they had to. Either of, evolve well, of course or you're did. not going to survive. Well, and what's fascinating about HP, just quickly, is remember when they split, everybody said, That's oh, right. E is going to kill it and yeah. Inc is dead. That's right. Well, guess what? The exact opposite, frankly, has happened. Inc has been doing very well uh, on top of this you know, robust PC business that's still there and the printing side. You know, and then Microsoft. Microsoft has done a fantastic job of repositioning themselves as a, interestingly enough, more of a platform agnostic company than you would ever think, even though they own a platform. Isn't that amazing? One of the things they talked about at this event, which, by the way, had new Surface PCs and, and Surface Studio, you know, some of their new yeah. Surface devices, but they also had new things in Windows 10 and in, um, in Office 365 that are really geared to get you to work more efficiently with other non-Windows devices, namely Android phones in particular, and a little bit with iOS as well. So very interesting to see how we have seen these companies evolve. Well, well with our sticking with that theme of Flashback Wednesday, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Dell because there's a story on the terminal that says uh, it met with its uh, banks about an IPO contingency plan. So if it does not ultimately uh, go public once again, you know, they're looking at other plans. Where does Dell well, fit into all of this. Look, and here's another great example of a company that so many people wrote off. And Michael Dell has pulled off, frankly, you know, what some would argue is a sort of a financial miracle yeah. uh, in what they've, when he's been able to do. When they merged with EMC and they built around all this, you know, what a lot of people considered old school server data center business, um, they've still managed to keep themselves very relevant, in part because, of course, the reality is what people think is happening and what actually happens you know in businesses isn't always quite as fast right yes people are moving to the cloud but they still have big data centers that they're using and they need equipment and providers and what dell has particularly done has been able to take 
pieces of critical software. There, the efforts, obviously, with VMware is a huge deal, but there are other these smaller software companies they've bought over the years, Boomi and other companies that actually do some pretty amazing things. And so they're putting together entire packages, entire solutions around some of these complex problems that businesses have. Like software as service, right? So they're doing some software as a service. They're doing a whole variety of different things, you know. You're going to ask about chips? We only have yeah. 40 seconds. So in 40 seconds or less, chips, are we scared that the cycle is going to turn or is the cycle no longer relevant? Well, look, I, you know, there's a lot of debate there. I don't think it'll turn because there are still a lot of devices. If you look at what Intel's saying, look, they're having a hard time even supplying chips. Uh, devices continue to sell. IoT is driving the use of more and more chips. Right. They're cheaper ones, but I still think there's plenty of opportunity. I got a chip in me right now. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Exactly. That's how she does it. That's the secret, <laughs> folks. We've been wondering. That is the secret. Bob O'Donnell, President Chief Analyst, Technolysis Research, based in Foster City, California, but here with us in our nice Bloomberg yes. Interactive so Broker Studio. Thanks, that was a yeah. great tour of like tech I know. on a Way Back Wednesday. We're so lucky that we caught him. See, I tweaked it Way Back Wednesday. Way Back Wednesday. It's when. WW. <laughs> Said it's Throwback Wednesday. Oh We're just goodness. workshopping it. We're workshopping it here. You want to take us out? Yes, I will. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio with Jason Kelly and Carol Massey. Strong with are increasingly using the cloud and software to change how they conduct business and how they kind of move money around, if you will. Carla Friedi is founder and CEO at Envoice Pay, based in Portland, Oregon, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York City. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Nice, nice to, to have here. you. Nice to have you here. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. It's all payment automation software that you do. It is. And in in the business world, payment automation is a new category. I know that sounds incredible because as consumers, everybody can pick up their phone and pay anybody they want. But the reality of business payments is really different. It's archaic. It's paper bound. So the, the first solutions that came to the market, you know, 20 years ago, really added more inefficiencies than they solved. So they put more work on the teams paying those invoices. So payment automation is relatively new. So this is the first time businesses can simply send their invoices to somebody and say, pay it and have it done without touching anything. I have to say, I actually worked for um, a company that my mom worked with like as a, as a high school student and as a college student and would be put in like accounts receivable, accounts payable, yeah. and was handwriting checks and yeah. doing things. It was so manual and these old computer systems with like, um, I don't know whether it was like a tape that you would feed through. Like it's amazing. I mean, it's a few years ago, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of shocking, but it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. I was going to say, I didn't think it, it had. Right. And so what was the catalyst? I mean, was it just a matter of time that companies had to catch up with where consumers were or was there? There's some sort of little mini revolution or some catalyst that caused it that think, companies to do it. I think there's a couple things that have gone on. One, you know, the expectation in the consumer space that there should be an easier way to do things. I think, two, the, the cloud and technology bringing the cost down so companies like Invoice Pay can afford to add the services that are required to make customers successful. So in business-to-business payments, you have to collect the data on who you're paying. You have to validate it, securely store it, and so that your customer doesn't have to do that work and doesn't have to touch it. And I think it wasn't until the cloud came along that it lowered the cost enough so companies like InvoicePay could try to do this. And I think before that, it was kind of the path of least resistance. Tech companies went to consumer payments, which was a little bit easier. It was right. more scalable, uh, yeah. less heavy lifting. So 
as consumer payments have become um, more saturated and uh, I think payment companies are looking around and now B2B payments has become really a hot space. I'm curious too, you guys are working globally, correct? <clears throat> or you, no? No. Well, we send payments globally, but our customers, we're focused on US-based customers. Because is it more complicated to kind of get into other markets because of that? Because of different... For us, it's been... There's so much demand Here. in the U.S. that we are going as fast as we can and growing as fast as we can to keep up with U.S. demand. So so for us, the, it's such a big market in the U.S. Right. It's so paper-based that there isn't really a reason to go somewhere else. Who's your typical customer? Is it a small-sized company? Is it a mid-sized company? We serve large enterprises. So when we started, we thought those were the ones who would have the solution solved, but they kind of came to us. Mm. And in for large enterprises, they have a much more complex problem because they have, you know, multiple locations, multiple hierarchies. They may have companies, divisions, sectors. Right. And so the complication of having visibility across all that makes it much tougher. So we serve those large enterprise companies and we give them the visibility and the control over all their payments. So you yourself have worked in companies large and small. You're a bit of a serial entrepreneur uh, of late. Why Portland? What What's the scene uh, like there and how is it out there for an entrepreneur? We can't have an entrepreneur in the studio with us without like, getting the juice. So Portland is a great place to grow a company. It's a tough place to start a company because it doesn't have the breadth and depth of venture capital of a place like Silicon Valley or Seattle. But Portland is a great place to grow a company because people are really committed to what they do. They like being there. They want to be part of something. So while I was a little jealous of my Silicon Valley peers when I started, I feel really good about what we're building and the the company that we can build in Portland. Right. Because you did a tour down in Silicon Valley. You previously worked on there, right? Or no? I I was a consultant for a okay. long time, and most of our you know clients were in the Bay Area. So I spent five years doing that. So I kind of feel like during those years, you I was it. in the Bay Area. <laughs> hey, Carla, just got about 40 seconds left here, though. Is it getting more expensive, though, to run a business in Portland? And I'm just curious about access to workers. Is there a lot of competition? There's still a lot of great talent in Portland. I hate to say that because maybe other companies are going to move there. They're going to listen. There's a they're, ton on, of they're headed your way. <laughs> Well, very good. Carla Friedi, founder and chief executive officer of Invoice Pay, based out in Portland, Oregon, as we've been discussing, yeah. here with us today in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Time for the drive to the close. Willie Delwich is Managing Director of Investment Strategist over at Bear, joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. Uh, Willie, good to have you here with Jason and myself. Tell me a little bit about um, the market internals, because I was looking th- over your research note, and you talk a lot about what we're seeing in terms of the major equity averages overall versus what we're seeing when you look internally uh, in terms of uh, stocks hitting highs or lows, what it tells us about maybe the market. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. We've got you know the Dow making a new high today, but you you look inside, um, you've got what, three, almost four times as many stocks on the NYSE making new lows as new highs, and it's, it's not just 
interest-related issues, because if you look on the NASDAQ as well, you've got more lo- more lows than new highs. So um, you've, you've really got a market right now where if you look at the indexes, in just the indexes, things look okay, but you start to, to peel it back and look inside, and it's um, getting pretty narrow in terms of participation and um, not real healthy at this point. And when you narrow down and you start to look at what sectors may still have uh, some room to run in this market, what do you focus on? Well, the, the areas, the, some of the rotation you've seen in terms of, of leadership, you, you start to see um, you know, technology and, and discretionary lose a step, but um, stepping into leadership is, is healthcare and industrials. Um, so from an perspective of industrials, that's encouraging because that suggests that the good news that we're getting from the economy is um, maybe something that can stick around for a while. So, Well, it's also interesting, too, that you're taking a look at what's going on with the U.S. markets versus other global markets, yeah. making the point that, you know, historically, when we've got a bull market, they're typically global yeah. in scope. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And that's um, whether you're looking at the economy or looking at the markets, the U.S. is kind of an island right now. Um, good economic news in the U.S., not so great econo- uh, economic news overseas. The U.S. market's making new highs. Um, by and large, um, you're not seeing that around the rest of the world. Um, but that does, know, the question- does that say to you that it's a, that it, you've got investors being discretionary in terms of really trading on fundamentals, looking at the specific markets rather than just throwing money at everything and saying everything looks good? Yeah, well, that, that, that is a, that, that's a, a positive way of looking at it. Um, the, it would be better, though, to have the, the global economy doing better, better with the U.S. economy and the global markets doing better. And so, so I guess the question is, does the rest of the world catch up to the U.S., or does the, the U.S. need to catch down to the rest of the world? Mm. Um, that's still to be seen, but that, that I think, is, is the kind of the tension that's out there right now. So, Willie, I want to ask you a question because I was uh, peering at your Twitter feed, and yeah. uh, one of the things you uh, you retweeted – I know retweets are not endorsements, but I wanted to <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you about this because you retweeted something from Cliff Asnes, who's someone we talk to fairly mm-hmm. often, um, talking about the, the move by Amazon to raise the minimum wage to $15. More news on that today with sort of how they're yeah. going to pay for it. Setting sure. that aside, how do you look at a market – move like that? Because it is a broader uh, market move that, that may play through from a wage perspective. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into, you know, company-specific um, I- issues, but um, I, I think it's a good PR move from, from Amazon's perspective. They, mm-hmm. If they're going to do it, then they can encourage um, the, you know, the, a, a federal law to to, to raise the minimum wage, and then that plays to their benefit, I think. They're already going to be raising their wages, and that puts pressure on um, some of their competition. So I think that's um, wise from that perspective. Um, I, I've got personal opinions that aren't here or there about uh, the you know minimum wage issues, but, um, but yeah, from, from a political perspective, it makes sense for them to, having done it, to encourage... Uh, Congress to to get behind a, a national minimum wage, right. and, may, and maybe the story is going to be um, 
that we're going to start talking more and more about wage increases at companies and what that's going to do to their cost equation, what that does then ultimately to their profit equation, and then what that does to how they perform, certainly for public companies, how they perform in the stock market. Are we getting to that point? That is very much the focus right now from my perspective is we've got record profit margins, and if you see wages start to move higher, and it's not just this news on Amazon, you see it elsewhere. you know, commodity prices moving higher with oil doing what it's doing. You've got interest costs moving higher. Um, I, I think the story as we go into earnings season is going to be what our company is saying about current profit margins and what that means going forward um, and whether or not they need to start to, to tamp down some of the, the really positive expectations that are out there for earnings growth. Great stuff. Willie Delwich, you are Managing Director and Investment Strategist at Bear, joining us on the phone uh, from Milwaukee. Uh, great to have you with us. So, Carol, just taking a look at, you know, as you said, markets off their highs, but also yeah. wanted to take a look at what people are reading here on the Bloomberg. Uh, interestingly, Amazon uh, is right at the top over the last hour. Uh, that news today, we've mm-hmm. only talked about it briefly Warehouse workers losing their bonuses and stock awards in order to pay for those raises that we were just talking about uh, with Willie. So maybe all of that PR, good PR that they got yesterday, maybe going away when it comes becomes clear how they're going to pay for it. Yeah, it's it's just kind of interesting, and whether this is a balance sheet maneuver or whether you know this is putting more money uh, into the pockets of their workers. Um, you know, I guess we'll have to see what exactly it all means. But uh, it's looks like. They may have some splaining to do, though. Some splaining to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some will say that you put it into their paychecks, and it means it's kind of a guaranteed money going forward. Raises are, you know, keyed off of that. A bonus is discretionary. That's absolutely true. Or it, can be. It, it just feels like that maybe the, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> no, I, 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 don't, I don't have a good technical, economic, or fiscal explanation <laughs> for this, other than like, oh, that doesn't it just seemed a little feel odd. so great if now I'm going to lose my bonus in order uh, – in order to get a higher paycheck. Wait, it's a, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? (laughs) Amazon shares, by the way, uh, they were up as much as uh, about nine-tenths of a percent. Now they're down about eight-tenths of a percent, trading at $1,954.49 a share. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.